This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Podcast, episode number seven. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? In today's episode, I talked to Pete Humphreys, who is a spay casting instructor and Great Lakes steelhead guide. Pete covers and describes the spay cast in detail and a number of tips to help you out if you're struggling. He covers casting, sinking lines, tips to keep your fly fishing longer, and the struggle of more than 90% of spay casters, plus the four principles of spay casting. Uh, he goes deep into all things Great Lakes and spay casting, uh, plus a bunch of extras. Don't uh, miss out when he talks about the hammer analogy and how to stand correctly in the water while casting. So, without further ado, here's Pete Humphreys. How's it going, Pete? Good, Dave. How are you today? Good. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate you taking a little time here to talk some steelhead fish, and I've... Uh, I definitely heard some, uh, I listened to you on a uh, recent podcast on uh, Anchored and uh, listened to you describe spay casting and it pretty much blew me away. I, I was, I've struggled a little bit with uh, some of the spay casting stuff and uh, so I wanted to get you on here to chat about that and, uh, and dig into some, some Great Lakes fishing um, information and just uh, kind of talk generally about steel. Does that sound pretty good? Yeah, super. Yeah, right, absolutely. Good. Uh, so yeah, maybe you could just start us off with, uh, talk about your story as far as how you got into fly fishing and, and eventually steelhead fishing and yeah. how that all came to be. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I was, I was, I was born and raised in an outdoor family. My father was an avid, um, outdoorsman. Um, but the, the, the accessibility of fly fishing in the UK is very different than it is over here. Um, you know, England, all of the rivers are private. So uh, um, every single stretch has some sort of a riparian owner. And, um, you know, unless you've got lots of lots of money or you own it, it, you can't fish where you want to. You know, obviously, Michigan, everything's owned by the, the public. So we have access to these wonderful streams. So as I grew up, the sort of poor man's fly fishing is reservoir trout fishing. And that's what I, that's what I started out doing. Mm-hmm. My father um, had a, a, a rod in a syndicated reservoir trout fishing, which is basically still water trout fishing um, in sort of a, a smallish lake where you use a team of wet flies and you cast them out, maybe using a light, a light intermediate tip and you sort of strip it back. So, that was really my grassroots into into fly fishing, but I didn't really start river fishing until I moved to Michigan, which was in '93. Okay, um, and I ca- I came over here as a as a 21 year old. the The original reason was to come and play rugby mm-hmm. and just to have some fun. Um, but once my rugby career slowed, I realized what an amazing fishery I had. I had basically lucked into into coming to Western Western Michigan and. We have some of the most phenomenal tributaries um, that flow into Lake Michigan and some superb um, fly fishing opportunities here. So I slowly got more and more into it once my once my rugby career slowed. Hmm. Nice. So you pretty much steelhead fishing was the, the first thing you really jumped in fully. And, and uh, I guess you had a little experience. You know, I probably... 
Yeah, you know, you know, I probably I probably started out trout fishing before uh, before the steelheading, mm-hmm. and you know, I would I was I was your classic classic rookie. You know, I would I would, I would go and um, sort of swing a soft tackle during the day and um, try to try to maybe find some sort of fly hatch if I was lucky. Uh-huh. Um, but I basically started out just like everybody else because I had no background in in river fishing so when i started out i really relied very heavily on on my local fly shop um you know they were great it's called the great lakes fly fishing company up in up in rockford michigan those guys gave me some advice they showed me where to go they they sold me some flies and my first ever little fly outfit um so i i started literally from scratch um and it's and Hmm. basically started out fishing for for trout and I, I, I honestly didn't have any experience with a spay rod. Um, you know, again, because fishing rivers where spay fishing is, is sort of warranted in the UK, it's generally fishing for Atlantic salmon. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what you know about Atlantic salmon fishing. It's very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. And it typically is involves going up to Scotland, the fish, you know, the tweed, the spay, um, those sorts of rivers. And, it's you know we just we, I just I just didn't come from those kinds of financial means to have yeah. access to that to that type of fishing. So I didn't really have any spay knowledge. Now later in my father's life, he did he did start to fish for salmon more. Once he retired, he had a little bit of extra income, and he did actually start buying some days on on Scottish salmon rivers. And I was lucky enough to fish with him several times um, as sort of a guest. Uh, so I did get to fish some of those rivers towards the end of my father's life with, with him. Um, he passed away about four or five years ago, but that was where I really started to get the spay bug was when he first started doing some spay fishing. And okay. that was when I was first introduced to it. But then, then I found out about the whole steelhead game in the Great Lakes. Yeah. And I actually... I'm I'm about 30 minutes from a river called the Muskegon River, which is probably the the most premier spay river in the state. I mean, you've got the Muskegon, you've got the Manistee, which is further north, and then you have lots of good smaller streams. But if you really want to fish a long spay line, the Muskegon, in in my mind, is just a classic spay river. Mm. It's 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 rocky, it's gravelly, it's classic pools with with sort of riffles going into sort of a bucket and then long, long, long tail outs with sort of three to six foot depth with boulders and structure. I mean, it's, mm. it's really a spay fisherman's dream. Yeah. Um, and I was very lucky to be located close to it. And, and really there was only one guy who was, there was one guy who sort of pioneered it, it, in the Great Lakes, as far as Michigan fishing, and that is and that is Kevin Feenstra. I mean, Kevin was the first guy to to start spay fishing, and 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 you know, I became a complete fly junkie, fly fishing addict, and I was I was doing everything I possibly could to get good at fly fishing. It was my dream, it was my passion. I spent every weekend at doing it, and I finally, re- you know, once you've been in it long enough, and you sort of cut your teeth. You sort of get to know these people, you know. If you if you if you stick at it and work hard enough at something, you you eventually get accepted into the, into into that group. And I finally sort of broke into the guide circuit, so to speak, after several years of dedicated um, 
fishing. Um, and I became friends with, um, with Kevin and Kevin was out there using the rods that my dad used, you know, the 14 footers and the 15 footers. And he was swinging fly, swinging flies, just like we would for Atlantic salmon. And he was catching great Lake steelhead and, um, and fishing kind so of that, long, longer belly lines and that sort of thing. You know, I think back in those days, we started out with the rear wind cutter. That oh, yeah. was really the only choice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it wasn't obviously as user-friendly as the more modern lines, you know, now that we have Scandi bellies and we yeah. have Skagit heads and all the shorter lines. So it was really the rear wind cutter. Um, that was the go-to line back in the day. And yeah. um, that's, that's, what, that's what we all learned with and, that was the line of choice. And I think back, I think the rear wind cutter was like a 55 foot head. So it's really a short belly traditional line. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is, Dave, is, is that, you know, if you could get good with that 55 foot head, you'd be surprised how, how, how easy it is to cast these, these, these modern oh, yeah. short heads, you know, cause yep. most people, you'd be surprised at how many people struggle with a 55 foot head when, Back in those days, a 55-foot head was short. You know, I mean, that was kind of an easy line to start. With. Oh, yeah. But now, nowadays, most of the beginners, you know, yeah. they 55-foot yeah. of fly line is quite a lot for them to be moving around. So yeah. it's kind of funny how these, these, these modern fly lines have really made the sport so much more accessible, which is, which is a great thing, right? It's a great thing that people can go out and have instant success with a with a Skagit head and, and a sink tip, they can go out, uh, go out and make fishable casts within a few hours of practice, you know, oh, yeah. which is, is awesome. For sure. For sure. No, I, so, uh, yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say this. So, so that, that was my, my big, my big introduction to Great Lakes steelhead as far as spade fishing was basically through Kevin Feenstra mm-hmm. and it just grabbed a hold of me and I was I just wanted to be good at it I, I it was I thought about it night and day yes. and I just worked hard and I and I it took me a long time to to basically even 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 catch catch one fish I can I, I, I can mm-hmm. remember the first steelhead I caught over here and it was it was what we call a drop back hen which was basically a spawned out hen it was yep. in the spring and in the spring we have a run of fresh fish in the spring but there's also some drop back fish around and those are those are particularly aggressive hmm. um for the swung fly and that's what it was it was a spawned out female and it was in sort of April time and mm-hmm. um but once i what you know that first grab that first take oh, i mean yeah. you know you know that the tugs the drug and yep. that was it now, that was it for me <laughs> you're pretty much that was it pretty me. much addicted to it. that's it's kind of crazy steelhead well, i guess fishing in general but steelhead fishing especially it just it kind of has that that it, it kind of takes you all in and you're, you're kind of addicted to it. It's interesting the way it works. And that's what got me going on, you know, on this whole project is trying to document some of that and help others get into yeah. it as well. Um, yeah. So. And I don't think, I don't, I don't think that, uh, that my story is, 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 is any different than anybody else's. I mean, I'm sure that, I'm sure that anybody who's, who's, who's felt that connection to the swung fly has exactly the same story as I do. You know, they finally got a fish and that was, and that was it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, So that's interesting. That's great. So, so for spay casting, I mean, you've, you took it from there getting started and it seems like, I guess not fairly quickly. It sounds like you fished, uh, you know, all the time, but you became a casting instructor, went through the whole Federation of fly fishers. Can you explain that whole process and how, how that, uh, how difficult that was and everything? 
yeah, yeah, sure. So, so I mean, again, I just wanted to be good. I, I wanted to be, to be better. And as a fly fisherman, the one thing that you really can control is casting. Fly casting is a, is a huge part of fly fishing. I mean, it's sort of 80% of it. Mm-hmm. So I've always believed that, that I could take a, take a very good fly caster guiding and I could get them into fish. If you can't cast as a fly fisherman, you are going yeah. to, to, to struggle. So, and, and honestly, I was not very good. Um, I, was, I was pretty awful. Um, when I started out, I just was a hack <laughs> and, you know, I didn't really know that at the time, but, um, I met a guy called Andy Murray, who is a Scottish, um, fella who lives, um, over in the borders and he's a ghillie on the tweed and he's famous because of his association with Hardy flight. Okay. He was Hardy's, Hardy's chief instructor sure. for years. And he came over and did a spade fest. And I got to spend some time with him and I watched him casting and I'm like, that's, that's what it should be like. And a light bulb came on and I realized how bad I really (laughs) was at it. Even though I could go fishing, I just knew that, that, that I wanted to be better. So the path for me to get better was to, to start the journey for the, for the FFF, um, Mm -hmm. casting instructor certifications. And, um, I had some friends who were heavily involved and they said, Pete, you've got to do your regular single handed casting instructor test first. That's mm-hmm. step one on this journey. Yep. I really, I really wasn't interested in that. I was more interested in space. Spay was my true passion. That was yeah. what I wanted to be, yep. to be good at. But I had a great mentor and he said, you've got to do your CI first because it's going to teach you a tremendous amount about the physics of a fly cast. It's going to teach you to speak the sort of language mm-hmm. that the FFF wants you to be able to use to communicate with a student. So by doing the, the, the CI, which is the single handed casting instructor program first, it taught me a tremendous amount. The first thing that it taught me, Dave, was that I wasn't that good of a single hand caster either. Yeah. Um, you know, I went to see my mentor and he said, right, throw me some loops. Some, so I started throwing what I considered to be a great loop. And he said, well, you've got a tailing loop on your back cast. Yep. You are cupping, you're cupping the, the, the fly rod. So your, your, your back cast loop is, is out of, of parallel. Um, so basically I had, I had all these faults mm-hmm. that I never knew about. And because I was only looking at the forward cast, I wasn't looking at the back cast and my back cast was awful and my forward cast was okay. (laughs) So, you know, I immediately realized that I wasn't that good of a single hand caster either. And that I was a long way away from, I figured I'd walk in and kind of breeze this, this CI thinking, oh, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I'm a good caster. And the reality was, is that it took me a lot of work and a lot of study to basically test for the single hand. So, Cutting a long story short, I worked very hard. I practiced every day. I got better. I fixed my faults. I learned about the mechanics and the physics of a fly cast. I learned about how to communicate. Um, and I learned about faults. I learned about how to fix faults. Mm-hmm. That's all part of the process. And you'd be amazed that with a single-handed fly cast, 
those things all move over to a spade mm. cast. Just because it's a two-handed fly rod, the physics of the cast are still the same. You still have the mass and the weight of the fly line right. that, flexes, that flexes and loads a fly rod um, that stores energy in it, that is released when you stop the rod on the forward stroke, and that's what mm -hmm. propels the fly line forward. You still have the same physics of what causes a tight loop versus a open loop. Well, it's the path of the fly rod tip. If the rod tip goes on a straight line, you get a tight loop. If it goes on a big open arc, like a big igloo, painting the ceiling of the igloo, you get a big open loop. Those physics are the same, whether it's a two-handed rod or a single-handed rod. The difference with a two-handed spade cast is, is that you have a anchor. Yeah. And that the anchor is the fly, the leader, and the front tip of the fly line that's stuck onto the water, and it basically prevents uh, you from making a back cast. So, mm -hmm. But learning all that stuff about a single-handed cast was key to then move into the two-handed one. Now, okay. the, the two-handed one is is much more challenging than the regular CI, the casting instructor one. So I think the two-handed one has more of a master's sort of qualification to it. Um, so I basically studied for that next. So I, I passed my CI, and then I studied for probably six months solid for my spay. Again, I had a lot of help. I had a great mentor. Um who helped me tremendously. And that's typically how these FFF things work is yeah. most candidates have, have somebody who will, who will take them under their, their wing and help them. Okay. Um, I did, I did, I did several pre-tests. Um, and I actually tested at San Francisco at Sparama and my, my, my testers were Mel Krieger, huh. who, uh, who's, who's passed away now. Right. And, uh, and, and a younger hotshot called Chris King. I'm not sure Chris is still with the FFF, but he was a board governor. So um, between those two, they gave me a pretty good, pretty good grilling. Hmm. Um, the other interesting thing, Dave, was is, was that my practice time was in the middle of 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 winter because oh. Spay Arama is in is in April. So I had to basically break the ice in <laughs> in in sort of the the local pond. I, I found this um, arena where they kept a piece of open of open water. They had like a like a bubbler system in that kept it from okay. freezing. So I would pull up there and put on my neoprene and go out and practice in February in the snow um, before I went out for for the for the spare arm. So it was a big commitment huh. to get it done. Um, but again, I I had a lot of help, and I just it's just something that I that I really 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 wanted so i passed um first time and and then about a year later i did my masters i did my single hand masters as well so i actually have my single hand masters and i have the spay one and and it's it i can say without doubt it was taking those tests that took my casting from being decidedly average mm. to being decent mm. without going through the process of studying and practicing for those tests um, I, that, that was the vehicle that improved my casting, yeah. um, tremendously. Mm. So I, I found it to be a wonderful experience and uh, you know, I highly, I highly recommend it for anybody who's interested yeah. in, in, you know, improving and learning more about, about the physics of a fly cast and how to fix faults. Mm. Oh, that's, that's cool. Yeah. That's, uh, th takes us into that a little bit, the, the amount of work and I'm sure you spent, uh, many hours and hours just preparing for that but uh 
I guess staying on this topic of spay casting, maybe you can describe, um, you know, maybe go a little deeper and describe, um, you know, the white mouse and uh, maybe just break it down. If you think, you know, somebody listening to this is is a beginner, uh, they've done some fly fishing yeah. probably with single hand lines, but they want to get into steelhead fishing or maybe this is the first time spay casting. Can you break mm-hmm. down just, um, you know, describe the process and maybe – Sure. The whole cast. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so maybe, maybe, Dave. What I can do is is sort of explain how I would teach a student who came to see me. Sure. Um, that might be a good way of sort of going through the steps that I would take with a a beginner. Yeah. Um, so the first thing is obviously make sure that the equipment is balanced, and and what that means is is that they have a fly line on that is heavy enough to flex and load the fly rod properly. Mm-hmm. So make sure that the fly line matches to the uh, to the fly rod. Okay, that's number one, and that's just through working with a a educated fly shop. Yeah. Some fly shops are, are are more educated about spay than others, and if you get the wrong fly line. Then you're going to be struggling from and, day and what it, from day one. And what is a typical, um, you know, if we're just thinking of the Great Lakes over in Western Michigan, a typical uh, rod length and weight that you might use for for swinging flies? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's basically two segments. So there are there are what I consider to be to be boat 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 fishing rivers, and they are the Muskegon, they're the Muskegon and the Manistee primary those are the two bigger bigger rivers on those rivers we're using at least a 12 and a half footer um i i actually like a 13 foot 13 and a half for anywhere up to 14 feet and we're usually using eight weights or nine weights um i said if i if i had to pick a rod i mean currently i fish sage x 13 for eight Mm -hmm. from the boat um now the reason that that we need longer rods is because when when we're boat fishing we're fishing full sinking fly lines. Okay. So and I'll get into that a yeah. little bit a little bit later okay. as we move the topic a bit. Perfect. So so basically a you know a thirteen foot eight weight would be would be ideal. And then there are the smaller streams like the PM Marquette, the Rogue. These are switch rod rivers, perfect for eleven foot seven weights. Um, because you're walking and wading and you don't have yeah. to cast as far. They're sort of 60 foot cast. But gotcha. so, so I would have my beginner show up. I would start them out with a full floating Scandi line and I'd put a very long tapered leader on it so that it anchored and mm-hmm. I put a nice big piece of fluffy on it. So I'd start them out with a float. So that's what we start out with because a spade cast is a, a, a roll cast with a change of direction that's my definition of a spade cast so we start out with a deadline roll we just start with the student grip the rod gently about shoulder width apart start with the rod tip low do a nice slow lift draw the rod back to the firing position pause let the d loop form and accelerate to a crisp stop and form a nice loop let that loop go out and then lower the rod again and do it again and and the reason the learning with a deadline roll cast is so important is it teaches the student the mechanics of a forward stroke. Mm-hmm. It teaches them the muscle memory for the key positions, which are the firing position or the home position, which is before you make the forward stroke. And it teaches the student about making a good crisp stop on the forward stroke, which is what unleashes 
the energy from that rod into the fly line, which forms our loop. So there's these vital pieces of muscle memory that, that, that need to become second nature that you learn with a deadline roll cast. And the student has to be able to do that off both shoulders. So we start out by doing it off with the right hand on top if it's a right-handed caster. And then we switch and we put our left hand on top. And we also learn the deadline roll cast off the other side of your your of your body. There's absolutely no point in learning how to spay cast if you cannot do it off both shoulders. Mm-hmm. And I don't care whether the student wants to be backhanded or switch hands. I prefer it if they can switch hands. But a lot of times people just feel more comfortable casting what we call cack-handed or backhanded, where you cross the hands and yeah. you leave the dominant hand on top of the rod. Some yeah. people just find that to be easy. And it doesn't matter to me. My goal is to get the student so they can go fishing. Yeah. Now, the, the, the reason why they have to learn off both shoulders is because of a safety issue, and that's because of the wind. Mm-hmm. So you must always cast with the wind blowing the D-loop away from your body. So think about that. If it's a downstream wind, we cast off the downstream side of our body. If it's an upstream wind, we always cast off the upstream side of of our body. So if you show up and you're on river left and you want to fish this gorgeous run and it's a howling downstream wind and you can't cast off your left shoulder, you're you're in serious trouble. (laughs) So it just doesn't work to learn spay and not get something off that off that other shoulder and you know we we don't expect it to be as good as the more dominant hand but a lot of times after a bit of practice the the less dominant side becomes better because Mm. the student the student doesn't have as much as as much muscle memory there so they, they often become better so the starting point is always with that deadline role and and until they've got the idea of flexing the fly rod so loading the fly rod and unloading the fly rod and and how to form a a tight loop we really don't progress much further than that point i mean i might spend 30 minutes of a two-hour lesson just working on this deadline roll cast Mm -hmm. and getting some muscle memory down um so once we've done that i will then try and and basically have them move towards a circle spay um you can call it a snap t you can call it a circle spay mm-hmm. I, I, I there's there's a very slight difference in my opinion between those yeah those uh, those two casts are very very similar we we use the circle spay in the great lakes because we're always lifting full sinking lines so what we want to do with the circle is start very low and do a very big high lift and then just accelerate gently back underneath so rather than the snapping movement of a snap t it's it's the same thing it's just we're lifting off the fly line and then we do this big sort of open loop upstream and come back down again we don't actually do that aggressive snap mm-hmm. um but it ends up with the fly line in exactly the same spot we basically moved our anchor point upstream of us so what i do is i teach them how to do that lift and set and then all I have to do is deadline roll it back downstream again. We don't worry about doing the change of direction yet. So basically, I'm teaching them step one of a circle spade, which okay. is the lift and the reposition. And then deadline roll straight back downstream to the 
hang down again. Mm-hmm. That way we break it down in, in, into segments. Rather than trying to teach them three things yeah. at once, I'm just teaching them the setup move now. And we work on that. And that do- usually doesn't take very long for the student to get the hang of that nice slow lift and underneath with the rod tip and set that anchor point upstream. Um, that's another reason why we start out with a full floating line, mm. because it just it, it makes the physics and it's so much easier for the student to see everything. You know, get I use I, I, I use bright, bright orange fluorescent lines so they can see it on the water. They can mm-hmm. see how it sets up. Um so that would yeah. be a step. And what does the slowness, um, when you're setting up the, the circle, uh, you know, you're, you talk a lot about slowing things down. What is the, why is that so critical? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so the physics of physics of running water, pushing away from you, the physics of that will lift the heaviest sunk fly line to the surface. If you lift it slowly. So, You've heard of the shotgun lift where you mm-hmm. use both both arms simultaneously, you sort of push away, you push away. And as you slowly lift, the physics and the push of the flow of the 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 water will, will naturally lift the line to the surface. So by starting really, really slowly, you don't have to do the roll-off cast to begin with. Which you so often see people roll cast first, and yep. then they go into the snap tape. That's fine, and there are scenarios where you have to do that. For example, if you are standing in a very soft inside bend, and it's pretty deep, and the fly line just is physically oh, yeah. too far down, and yeah. you've got to roll it off. There, 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 there will always be times where you've got to roll it off. But if I can get the student to start with the rod tip touching the water, so... They don't waste any lift. I mean, the most frustrating thing is is a student starts with his rods five feet up in the air. Well, you've just wasted five feet of 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 of, of lifting power of the fly rod to, to start this process of the lift and get the current to to draw the fly line up to the surface. So if you get someone to start nice and low and slow and lift, 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 and then commit to that mm-hmm. circle move. They avoid doing a roll cast. And if you can avoid doing a roll cast day, guess what? You're going to fish an extra 20% of the day <laughs> because it's just one less move and you're, and you're flies back in the water. And yeah. at the end of the day, the longer that flies in the water, the higher percentage you've got of a steelhead grabbing it. So that's why I teach that very slow lift, lift, lift. And it just works well for the fly lines that we fish when we boat fish in the Muskegon, because we don't use floating bellies. Very, very rarely do we use a floating belly, maybe early in the season, but 90% of the time we're using a full intermediate body and some sort of fast sinking tip. Mm-hmm. So that's why I teach that lift, because you, you can avoid roll casting as long as gotcha. you have a good, solid lift. Okay. So we've got the student... With the deadline roll, we've now taught them step one of the circle space, snap teeth, whatever you want to call it, the upstream anchor reposition. They've got that down, and now they're still making a nice roll cast back downstream. The important thing, too, is make sure they practice the roll cast properly because what students will do is they'll start this sort of reposition move, and they'll be getting the hang of that, and they'll be enjoying that, and then all of a sudden they're, they're, 
their roll cast becomes awful because they've forgotten that we that the whole point of the roll cast is to practice the physics and the muscle memory for a forward stroke. So you've got to keep the student on track with that forward stroke. Make sure they're making good roll cast every time and throwing a loop. So once we've set up our upstream anchor with the circle move, I now have the student follow the fly line with the rod tip and just turn around and climb to the firing position and make that change of direction. It doesn't have to be a big change of direction, but we basically now take them and make them turn the corner with the rod and make a fishable cast. Mm -hmm. That's step three. So once we've got them doing that, we're feeling good. We're feeling positive. The students actually made a cast now that they could go and catch a steelhead with. And right. it's a, you know, we high five a little bit. Everyone's <laughs> happy. And we let them enjoy that. And they're having a great time because they're making a fishable cast. So yeah. Once we've got that piece going, and as a student, as long as as long as the the, the dots are lining up for the 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 student, we can then start to get a little bit more technical, and we can then start to to perhaps tweak their cast a little bit. Mm. What I will teach them is I'll teach them about point P. Now these are these are all Simon Goresworth terminology. I basically yeah. plagiarized him oh, a yeah. lot. So this is this is this is Simon's stuff. Simon's a dear friend of mine, and I and I won't. I'll give him all the credit because I, I've I got, still, I've, yeah, we've I've all got. got <laughs> I was just going to so, say that uh, I got uh, Simon. He's coming on the show here in a, in a, a couple e episodes, so oh, it'll, be, it'll be great. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh, super. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a great guy, and I mean, he basically founded a lot of the modern teaching terminology. Certainly, the stuff that I use a lot. So. Point P is where the fly line touches the water. It's as simple as that. So when the fly rod is touching, the tip of my line is, the tip of my rod is touching the surface, that's where, point, that's where point P is. When I lift, point P runs away from me. When I stop, point P comes back towards me. So point P is a wonderful teaching aid. If you can get the student to watch point P and, and read point P, that's what we call it, reading the fly line. If you can get a student to look at that, as they lift, point P will run away from them. And there's a magic point where point P is barely holding on. There's maybe even just maybe a foot of fly line that's still on the water and the rest is all leader well if you can get a student to actually watch that it's going to tell them when the right time to reposition the flyer so i teach them about point p and how valuable watching point p is because without a good lift you don't get a good anchor without a good anchor you don't make a good cast so the all spade casts start with a lift and if you make a good lift you're going to make a good cast a spade cast is like building building the Eiffel Tower. If you don't have a good base and a good platform, the rest of it's going to come falling down. And the platform is the lift. The lift is number one. They all start with a lift. And if you've got a bad lift, the anchor's going to not be in the correct place. And then you're going to make a poor cast, period. So yeah. that's why we teach about the point P and, and watching it. Once we teach the point P piece and the student starts to see that, and you could talk about the timing with the student and you can get them excited about watching that point P, I then talk about the white mouse. Now, mm -hmm. yeah, I touched on this a little bit with April's cast. So, yeah. why is why is what's what is what is the white the white mouse? Well, it it is the sound of the fly line tearing off the surface of the water during the sweep to the firing 
position. The white mouse is our friend. What the white mouse indicates is, is that the fly rod is bending during that sweep because you're generating tear, you're generating load. You can watch it. You can look at the rod tip and you'll see it bend. Mm -hmm. When a fly rod bends, it stores energy. It's loaded. We call that a loaded fly rod. A bent fly rod is a loaded fly rod. Mm -hmm. So, of course, what happens is during that sweep and we get the white mouse going, we climb up to the firing position and we pause. So what happens when we pause, Dave? The fly rod then straightens, and the fly rod energizes. All that energy goes into the D-loop. Mm -hmm. So now our D-loop becomes from this, this, this soft, flabby uh, sort of – it doesn't have any energy. It becomes this living, powerful thing, and that's what loads the fly rod on the forward stroke. If you can energize your D-loop without ripping the anchor mm – -hmm you're going to make a very effortless, powerful forward cast because the D-loop in spay is the same as the back cast. And the old saying is, with lefty crate, you've got to make a good back cast to make a good forward cast. So if you can make a good, energized D-loop mm -hmm. that, that, that maintains a anchor, the forward cast is going to be great. And, and it's also going to make the forecast effortless because you've got this energy and you've got this living thing that's behind and going directly away from your from your target. The forward stroke doesn't have to be aggressive. It can right. be smooth. It can be crisp. You can make it yep. look effortless. The best spay casters make it look effortless. It and I guarantee you it's it's because they've loaded the D loop. Yep. It's because they've got energy, they've got tension, they've got power in that D-loop, and that's what's allowing them to make the forward stroke look so easy because the fly rod's loading up on that forward stroke against that energy of that D-loop that's going away from the target. Yeah. So we teach the white mouse because we want a white mouse. We don't want a white ferret or a white, <laughs> a, a white, a white rabbit. Right. Um, and we also don't want a white shrew. We want just that perfect, that little, shh, a nice little bit of tear, which means that we're generating load, but we're not going to overload it because the biggest issue with most spay casting is ripping the anchor. People yeah. rip the anchor all the time, and that causes that's that. I'd say that ripping the anchor or anchor problems is ninety percent of the casting faults. Yeah. Um, and it's most of the time having too too little anchor. You'd be amazed at how compact your casting stroke can be with these modern short lines. You don't need a long casting stroke. The longer the stroke, all you're going to do is pull off the anchor. And these modern lines have so much power in the belly. I mean, they've got so much mass that you can leave quite a lot of fly lines stuck onto the water and that and the power from the belly will pick that up and turn it over. And, and mm -hmm. you can't really get powerful with a spade cast until you've got control over anchor. Um, and that's why that, that tempo of the white mouse is important because if it's too aggressive, you're going to rip the anchor. If it's too slow, then you're not going to load it. So it's okay. a real fine line mm -hmm. and that comes with time. Uh, and there's a couple of there's there's one other great teaching aid with the white mouse. It also tells you the perfect timing for the forward stroke. So when you hear the white mouse stop, everything's perfect. Hmm. So not only is it a visual teaching aid, it's also something that you can listen to. Because when you hear that tear, shh, mm -hmm. once it stops, once it stops, you need to make the forward stroke. If you go too quick, you're going to pull the anchor. If you wait too long, the D-loop's going to 
going to collapse and you'll miss the sweet spot. Mm. So it tells you exactly when the sweet spot is. There's no guesswork with it. That's it. Once the white mouse stops, you go. You make the forward stroke. And what does a, uh, a white rabbit sound like or, or some of the other animals? Well, it's just, just yeah. a Frenchman sucking, Frenchman sucking soup, as Simon calls it. You get this, <laughs> you get this, you get this sort of um, you know, too much spray. Too much, yeah. too much noise. You want just a nice, nice little stream of water coming off that fly line okay. as you as you make the sweep up to the firing position. Yep. Um, you know, another good thing as far as as far as a student is just to talk about what the four principles are of a spay cast because these these are a hundred percent. Every single spay cast has these. And they are they are they are the lifeblood, they're the foundation of it. So okay. the four the four things for for spay is number one, they all start with a lift. Number two, you form a D loop. Mm-hmm. Number three, they have a anchor point. And number four, it all works within the one hundred and eighty degree rule principle. And the one hundred and eighty degree rule principle is simply that the D loop the forward stroke and the target are all in a straight line. Mm-hmm. And that is the same physics as with a single hand rod. If I throw my back cast straight behind me and then try to cast off at a 90 degree angle, the fly line will land in a pile and a heap. You, you, you always put the back cast directly 180 degrees away from where the target is for the most efficient mm-hmm. cast. And that's the same principle as the 180 principle. And the teaching skill for that is the train track analogy. And the train track analogy states that the outside train track is the fly line. The inside train track is the path of the rod tip. And the fly line points to the target. So if we follow that principle, we're always going to be working to the 180 rule. So when we do a change of direction cast, all we're doing is lining the train track up to point where we really want to to cars. So when I make my upstream move with a circle spay or a snap tee and I turn that corner with my sweep, you should see the fly line pull into position and you'll see the anchor will point at where you want to cast. The fly line is the outside train track. The rod tip is Mm. the inside train track. So the path of my tip to the target needs to be inside the fly line. If I cross it, if I cross it, it tangles. If the train track is super wide, we get a we get a soft loop yeah, that piles yeah. in a heap. Hmm. So, the, so those are the four principles yeah, that I'll, great. You, you really you really have to understand those um, as you because there's so much going on with the spay cast, Dave. Yeah. I mean, it really is a lot of stuff, and trying to make it as simple as possible can often be challenging. But that's the key. Yeah, you know, start out simple and one step at a time. It, it's interesting. Yeah. No, that was awesome. I, uh, you know, my story. I pretty much listened to uh watched you know simon's videos and taught myself while i was up in canada and uh and to this day you know i still really haven't had a uh you know a teacher and i'm kind of getting to that point but i think i've learned a lot of bad habits i've been able to catch plenty of fish but um uh you know there's still things that i struggle with and uh you know i think all this definitely is, is helpful but um so i think my my next step i it's the one thing i always point out is on the um you know, the forward cast, the thing I always really struggle with was using my upper hand 
because I was, I've steelhead fish for years with a single handed rod. And I always felt like, yeah. you know, I used that upper hand using, how do I stop? And, and actually just this week I was, I was out and, um, I don't know what it was. It was almost like I was, the way I was setting up the rod on my anchor placement was helping me not use my upper hand. I don't know what it was, but it just kind of came together and just felt really good. So it's yeah. weird how there's times when it feels really good and there's times where it feels really bad. And I think that's that muscle memory where I'm doing things still a yeah. little bit off. Yeah. And that's a very, very common, that's a totally common, common fault though. I mean, everybody who comes from one single hand cast, which is pretty much everyone and yep. and anyone that they all start out with a single hand rod. So they pick up this massive, this massive two handed rod and they're pushing with the top hand. Mm -hmm. And you know, what that does is, it often causes tailing loops because you push with the top hand and it overflexes the fly rod, rot it goes in a concave tip path and you get a tailing loop and they just push harder and harder and it just yep. gets worse and worse. Um, mm. So, I mean, you know, a couple of, a couple of great teaching tips for beginners who are, who are finding that they are using a too much top, top hand. There's a, there's a couple of small things that might help. Number one is, when we grip something with our thumb on top of the rod pointing upwards, like holding onto a, a hammer, for yeah. example, you always want to push with the hand when the thumb is, is, is pointing up the blank. So a nice little trick that can immediately help is take that thumb and put it around the rod and hold it in more of what I would call a fist grip. Mm -hmm. So, but hold it very lightly. I don't want the yeah. student gripping it tightly. I want you to hold it very lightly. Just touch touch your thumb to your index and your middle finger. Grip the rod lightly, but put the thumb around the blank. Don't put the thumb on the top. If that thumb's on top, it, it, it yeah. physically you want to push. Right. And you can take some of that off by putting the thumb into more of a fist grip. Another great little small tiny thing that can help the student um, unlock the power of the bottom hand which is how i like to describe it because the bottom hand is everything i mean oh, yeah. that's the engine that's the power yep. i mean that's that's where your gen that's what's core allows you to flex the fly rod at the thickest most powerful part of the blank is really trying to break the handle at the fly reel that's mm. where all the power is coming mm -hmm. from the deep part of the blank um so one other nice little little tip is to just narrow the grip slightly Sometimes oh, yeah. when a student student just drops the top hand down the rod a little bit and grips it halfway yep. um, and really concentrates on that bottom hand, make sure that they're holding it right on the bulbous end, you know, it, with a ring grip right on the bottom of the handle. You don't want the student gripping onto the full mm -hmm. bottom handle with his hand up against the fly rail. That's a no-no. You want, you want the hand right on that base, on that little bulbous piece. That's right. what that's there for, you know? <laughs> So those two things are two little little That's tips. Cool. Those are awesome that I found have helped a student who is using too much top hand. The other thing is stance. You know, if you stand with what we call a open stance, which would be the opposite leg facing forward. So if I'm casting off my right shoulder, if I open my stance, that's my left leg facing forward. I hope that makes sense. So right hand on top, right hand shoulder left leg forward, right leg back. Mm -hmm. That's an open stance. That's very conducive to top hand. It opens up the top. I mean, I'm doing it right now in my, uh, I'm saying, I'm yeah. speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm mimicking 
those motions and my top hand has a lot of freedom to travel a long distance. Well, if you close the stance, which is, which is right hand on top, right hand shoulder cast, right leg forward, left leg backwards, that then limits the top hand a little bit. It kind of reduces the movement of the top hand and it opens up the bottom hand. So that's one other little trick okay. would be I would make sure that the student is using what we call a closed stance, which will limit the top hand and open up his bottom hand. And at the end of the day, Dave, it all comes back to what we started with, the deadline roll. Yeah. If you're struggling with your forward stroke because you're using too much top hand, you need to go out and do some deadline roll casts and get back to the muscle memory and work on generating the power from from yep. from the – the, the, the unad, I always bring the student back to the deadline role. If there's a problem with a forward stroke where they don't have good muscle memory, that they're not getting to the firing position properly, their forward stop isn't in the correct place, I always bring them back to the deadline role and we work on that a little bit more to try to ingrain that muscle memory before they go back to the true spade cars. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Those are, uh, those are huge tips, I think, that anybody listening to this that's new to it uh, that's going to help a lot um good so thinking more about uh you know again back to the area where you fish in the great lakes how you know how do you catch fish can you explain how you guys do you're talking about yeah. the boats and things like that that's definitely something yeah. that's a little a little bit different um, i mean i fished i've caught steelhead out of the boat as well but uh, just curious to hear how you guys do it there yeah so so um on the muskegon river which again is is that's this is my my home water and i consider it as a boat river it is a tailout fishery so a lot of times we have higher flows and when the water's low you can definitely walk and wade it is a it's a lovely river to walk and wade fish too but a lot of times we have tailout runoff and the the river is just a little bit too high to really cover it effectively um, from a walking, walking and wading. So okay. we're fishing in the boat, and we're fishing to winter-run fish. So these fish start to come in in September, um, and the water temperatures are always dropping. And by the time we typically have a good run of fish, we're, we're generally looking at water temperatures around somewhere in the 40s, you know, yeah. low to mid-40s, but dropping all the time because mm. winter's coming in. So these fish are just not as surface-orientated as their West Coast cousins. Um, you know, we, we have a hatchery program. They are stocked as 10-inch fish. They smolt from the river fairly quickly. They don't spend four years, like some of the British Columbia steelhead, mm-hmm. they don't spend four years eating anything that moves because they're hungry and there's not a lot of food in the river. So they'll come up and grab a spider that drops in the river. Mm-hmm. They'll eat a bumblebee. They'll eat anything. They're opportunistic, mm-hmm. right? So West Coast fish are more surface-oriented. They'll come up and take the fly a little bit more readily than our Great Lakes. Not that our Great Lakes fish won't come for the fly and – and come up but in general we're trying we fish a little deeper and a little slower than we do out west so when you're standing up in a boat you need a fast sinking line to slow the fly down and get the fly down deep so we use full sinking setups and i prefer the rio scandi versa tip they make it in a intermediate belly and I pair that up with like a type eight sink tip. Sometimes I'll okay. put a 12 foot piece of T on it because it, it's actually quite a aggressive belly. It'll, it'll turn over T14 uh, and we use 
we use sparsely dressed weighted flies that get down and yep. stay down during the swim. A lot of people like Skagit heads for the Great Lakes because a lot of people fish pretty big, bulky flies. Sure. I've, I've, I designed my flies to be a little bit more sparse so that I can still fish with a Scandi. I find a Scandi line to just be more, it's just more my speed. I like mm -hmm. to cast a Scandi line that throws a nice loop. I'm not a big fan sure. of of, of chucking massive amounts of T14 around. But that would be probably the more common method would be people using Skagit heads. Um, and there are companies who make full sinking Skagit bellies. So basically, we set up on a run in a boat. We have a very heavy anchor, and it's on a mechanical winch system. Hmm. And we'll basically just bump the boat down the pool as if we were sort of wading it, you know, yeah. you know how you, t you make a cast, take sure. a couple of steps, make a cast. Take a well, we try to recreate that, but we just do it from the boat. Huh. And sometimes we have two anglers, one in the back, one in the front, um, and we just comb the run down. We just we just bump it down slowly on a winch system. And most people run about about one hundred pounds of anchor, wow. so that, so the boat stops yeah. stops quickly. And we just we just fish the whole run down all the way into the tail end, and no surprise, we catch a lot of steelhead in, in the in the in the tail out. Yeah. I mean, that's the most productive part yeah. of the run. I'd say ninety percent of the pools we catch them in the tail outs. Whether it's because we push them down the run a little bit by bumping them back with the boat. Right. There's different theories to it, but I just think that's where that's that's just a great place to catch yeah. steelhead in the tail out, it, right? Do you guys see a lot of um, as far as water level fluctuations, lots of ups and downs, or are they fairly steady? During that time of year, you know we are we're very lucky, Dave, because we have what's called the run of the river policy with Consumers Energy, which runs the dam. Oh, so, right. uh, so we don't get the massive fluctuations that some other tailout fisheries get. Mm -hmm. um, it'll be it'll be a fairly consistent bump up when we get rain, and then it'll be a fairly consistent drop back in yeah. as we don't get rain. So they do their best to sort of to sort of eliminate these massive increases sure. and drops, um, which is extremely helpful, you know? Yeah, yeah. But the problem with it is, Dave, is, is, is once it goes out, it's usually out for a little while because they usually have a lot of water. And the, uh, the Muskegon River is pretty large, pretty large drainage. It drains most of the state of Michigan. So hmm. if we get a serious blowout, it could be blown out for two weeks as far as being able to swing flies anyway. You'll still see a lot of guys out there fishing bait, but oh, yeah. the spay fishing, the spay fishing becomes, becomes just more challenging with so much, you know, with the water higher. Um, yeah, yeah, I hear you. Okay. But they are wonderful fish. I mean, I do want to say this for the listeners. I mean, a lot of people poo-poo the Great Lakes fish. Now, I've fished steelhead all over the world, yeah. and, I, and I fish for Atlantic salmon in Russia. I fish for Atlantic salmon in North. Pound for pound, uh, a October run Muskegon steelhead that's dying bright in fresh in in 55-degree water will kick your ass. <laughs> um, they are wonderful fish. They they smash the fly. They jump. They leap. They huh. they scream line off the reel. I mean, I've wow. caught Dean Steelhead. I've caught. I mean, pound for pound, an October Muskegon River Steelhead is just there. They are they are absolutely fantastic. That's and cool. Some years some years they are they are much bigger. Other years they are smaller. It really depends upon the food source in the lake. But there are some years where the average fish is ten is you know, ten pounds. Yeah. Um, and you might catch a 16 pounder and Jeez. they are, they're, they're, wow. they're, they're a handful. They that's really awesome. are a great. They're a great fish. That's they're awesome. Fish. No, that's yeah. cool. I, I give us a little taste of, uh, 
the fishery out there. So I've got, we're, uh, we're kind of, uh, getting close here, Pete. I know we got a little, uh, kind of a time, um, want to make sure to get you off to your next deal, but, um, I, you want to do a little rapid fire uh, question here? Uh, questions here? I sure. got a few, uh, actually I've got a whole bunch of questions. We could uh, do probably two more interviews here, but, um, maybe we could just do a rapid fire few here for the next 10 sure. minutes or so. And, um, and go from there. So I always, there's a few questions okay. I like to ask everybody. And, and one is, and you've talked a little, actually, as far as tips, you've given a ton on this, on the spade casting. It's been awesome. Um, just as far as steelhead fishing in general, do you have a tip or two that you might give a, yep. somebody new? Sure. Sure. Number one, most importantly, I would say don't cast outside of your abilities. You are much better off to make a great short cast than a crap long one. Mm. Um, so cast and fish a great short line rather than trying to add 10 feet and yep. overcast and underfish. I right. see that all the time. Uh, number two, I would say don't underestimate the hang down on the swing. Yeah. Um, a lot of steel out of court when that flies hanging down below you and you, you would be surprised at how much further that fly will keep fishing. If you let it sit there, you think it, you think it's straight and it's fished out, but it's not, it's yep. still coming around hmm. and the fly is lifting. It's moving away from any potential following fish, you get lots of takes on the hangout. And that's true in British Columbia fishing just as much as it yep. is for, for great lakes. It's probably more so for great lakes. fishing as well. Okay. And, and that, and the fish hang, the hang down. Okay, and the hang down. And I, I think April was called maybe on that. Or she, I think she said the dangle, and I've never really the dangle. Heard. Same thing. Okay, same thing. The dangle, the fished out position, yep. the hang down. Basically, once everything's straight, just yeah, just count to ten. Count to ten okay. before you recast. You'd be surprised like how that. you'll add. You'll add the odd fish to your game if you let that sit there for just a little bit, a little bit longer. Perfect. And probably the final tip as far as actually yeah. fishing is start short. Start short. Oh, yeah. When you walk into a run, the number of people that like walk into the head of a run and bomb out a eighty foot <laughs> cast. Well, you've just you've just missed sixty oh, yeah. feet of amazing inside exactly. water where you could have hooked two fish. Yeah. So start short. Oh, and that's the upper part of the run too, where you got those, you know, those areas that where fish are transitioning. And, yep. Yeah, people miss that. Yeah, that's people cool. Miss that. Awesome. Uh, as far as lines. Um, I guess you guys are getting down pretty deep, but how often do you clean your fly lines? Or is that something you think is very I clean critical? it. I clean it regu regularly. Yep. Regularly, especially when I'm out west and I'm fishing glacial runoff type water. Like, I, like if I'm fishing somewhere in British Columbia and there's a little bit of glacial melt coming in, I'll clean it. I'll clean it every day. I carry some of those Rio pads. Yep. They're, just, they're just little disposable wipes. Yeah. And I have, they're awesome. You just break them open, and you, I clean my running line and I clean my fly line. Um, you know, every day after fishing, and it makes a world of difference. Cool. It's a great question. Cool. Yeah. I'll, clean it more than yeah. More than you think. I'm yeah. gonna. I'll add links yeah. to uh, to that uh, and all the stuff we've been talking about here in the show notes. Um, okay. As far as pressure, you know, I know I've heard some stories about lots of pressure out that way in some of those rivers. Do you have any tips on? kind of avoiding or i guess you guys are in a boat but uh getting away from some of the pressure dealing with that as far as fishing yeah fishing. you know it's yeah it's difficult there are there are certain there are certain hot spots and certain and certain um areas that will always be be highly pressured so if there's anywhere where you get close to the 
the dam um there'll be there'll be people lined up like pelicans okay. you know fishing yeah. fishing sort of bait so you just you just have to you just have to get away from it but the nice thing with having a jet sled and the muskegon is is basically you've got 50 miles of fly fishable water oh wow so, so you can you can certainly find um space one other tip that i would give too is mm-hmm. if you are fishing around a lot of people my general go-to is go small as far as fly. Oh yeah. So if there's a yep. lot of anglers out there hitting hitting spots, I always downsize my size of fly. Yep. To and sometimes to really actually pretty darn small, like mm. Atlantic salmon size. Oh yeah. And so, you'd be surprised that you can pick up fish by going to something completely different. Because everyone's fishing big, flashy leeches yep. and big stuff because that's what's proven to typically work but you'd be amazed at how small of a pattern will take oh yeah will take steelhead yeah everywhere i have uh i always have this uh story i think of uh fishing for summer steelhead out here and it was one of those things where i probably got started a little too early in the morning before um there was a lot of light because there was a lot of pressure that day and i was trying to get the run that i wanted you know, we, we definitely right. have pressure to it. So I actually sure. casted my first fly out there, I think before it was even light. So probably shouldn't say that, but <laughs> I was just kind of doing it more to let people know I was out there. I was going to fish this run. And I mean, it was that fish hooked up and it was, it was pretty dark and I fished size eights, really small stuff too. So, I mean, those fish can see, I mean, they have amazing vision. So yeah, there's no worries there. Yeah, they. You'd be surprised at what I mean. I've had my I've had my eyes opened for fishing with a chap who 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 only fishes traditional, and this was in the spring under pretty heavy runoff, mm. and he was fishing a little classic dress. I think it was like a Lady Caroline. There's no flash in it. It's just a little small, like a size eight, and he hooked a tremendous amount of fish uh, on that fly, and it was a real eye opener for me because it just goes to show you that I think a lot of times we're fishing a little bit bigger than we we necessarily need to so yeah. interesting yeah yeah definitely okay uh, pete i got a, just a couple of quick ones here uh, as far as okay. uh, as far as flies and then we'll get get you out of here um so do you have a couple of fly i mean i guess maybe you can describe the types of flies you like to use i know you got all yeah. these you know people using stingers and small stuff what do you like as far as kind of more yeah. of a category i am i am i'm a diehard temple dog fan scandinavian style temple dog um I tie them with with Arctic fox tail fur. I use two wings, and I use flash, and I use a hackle. Uh, um, I don't do any body. Um, they have been the most productive flies for me. I think that the 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 teardrop shape is absolutely cr- crucial because it kind of represents a leech. It represents a bait fish. It's just it's 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 that teardrop shape, which is what predators look for. It has movement. It, 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 it looks it it looks alive when it's swimming mm-hmm. and it keeps its profile it keeps its bulk so when it's wet it goes boy it becomes this living thing nice. uh whereas some other materials flatten so i'm a massive fan of temple dog style flies and i use them in all different shapes and sizes okay cool and uh and what do you have what the next uh six months or so anything going on are you going to be getting a lot of fishing in or what, what do you have going i've got a couple of trips are, uh, on the books last year was absolutely crazy last year i did spring spring skiing a steelhead oh, i did cool. russia i did russia cola for atlantic salmon huh. i did Montana trout and i did i did skiing a bc steelhead again in the fall so i did four last year 
I've backed it off a bit this year. Um, this year, I'm going back to the Skeena in spring with the Skeena River Lodge uh, to fish for the spring run fish in March. And I'm going out to fish for baby tarpon oh. in Mexico in August. So those nice. are the two on my books for now. But you never know, Dave. Yeah. There's always been being planned. That's awesome. So, that's awesome. Yeah, that sounds like some good trips. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, great. Uh, Pete, we're, uh, if people wanted to find you or if they had a question from this show, uh, like I said, I'll leave some uh, information in the show notes. But do you have a place where we, we could direct them? Yeah, you could certainly go to, to Kevin Feenstra's site. Kevin Feenstra and his guide service um, are my friends, and okay. um, I'm listed on there as a, as, a, as a casting instructor. So my contact information is on that site. If somebody Perfect. wanted to um, reach out and touch base, I'd be very happy with Perfect. that. So, uh, yep, that's where they can find Okay, me. and I think that's uh, FeenstraGuideService.com, I believe is the… That's that's website. correct. And if I, yeah, yep, yep. And it's in there. It's in there under some of the links. You'll find it in Kevin's page. and. Um, so yeah okay great great well uh, I think that's all I have here Pete uh, I really appreciate okay, you breaking down the uh, the spay cast there I think it, it's uh, again like I said that's kind of what got me on to you and you did a real good job providing a bunch of tips so I appreciate that my pleasure Dave thanks so much for having me on I'm very flattered uh, that you'd want to speak with me so thank you very much okay thanks a lot we'll talk to you later alright Dave cheers now right, bye 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 so there you go. If you want to connect with Pete, go to FeenstraGuideService.com or take a look in the show notes at WetFlySwing.com and just search for 007 for episode number seven. Thanks again for stopping by the show. I hope to see you soon or catch you on the river. Check me out on Instagram at WetFlySwing and share a photo or your next fish pick. That would be awesome. Hope to see you soon and catch you very soon. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.